church is on the ropes. Now, it's not really on the, the ropes, mind you. After all, Matthew 16, Jesus tells Peter that he will build his church and that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So don't get me wrong when I say this, the church isn't going anywhere. It will never truly die. There will always be a church. But in terms of its popularity, in terms of its regard, the public perception of the church, that is currently on the decline in our society. People are increasingly viewing the church as unnecessary, superfluous. This is primarily reflected in the form of declining church attendance. According to Gallup polls, weekly church attendance has declined by about 20% in the last 15 years. Church membership has fallen about 25%. Now granted, much of this is due to the fact that there are simply fewer professing Christians than there were 15 years ago. About 42% of Americans described themselves as born-again Christians in 2003, compared to just 36% today. And that's a decline of about 15%. And that decline is obviously going to be matched with the decline in church attendance. But at the same time, at least part of this decline seems to be due to the fact that more and more Christians just don't see church as all that important. For example, according to a 2014 poll conducted by the Barna Research Group, just about half of all Americans, 49%, say that attending church is somewhat or very important. When it comes to millennials, which includes those Americans born between 1984 and 2002, the number is just 20%. And while it's possible that that figure could shift as that generation ages, it's still telling of the shift that's taking place in America. More and more people just don't think that church is that important. When we try to understand why this attitude is growing, we can come to a number of different answers, but they all seem to share a common theme. For instance, according to a different Barna poll, if you were to ask these same millennials, the 20% that just say that, uh, that, that only 20% that say that church is important, if you were to ask them why they didn't think church attendance was important, almost 40% pointed to the fact that they could find elsewhere, 35% said it wasn't relevant, and about 30% said it was boring. In other words, you're seeing this decline in church attendance accompanied by this rise in an attitude of indifference towards the church. And when you get down to why people think church attendance doesn't matter, one of the major reasons is it doesn't do anything for me. It wasn't relevant. It was boring. I couldn't find God there. Those are all just different ways of saying it didn't benefit me. That's part of what the data is telling us. And you don't need statistics from national polls to know this. It's not uncommon to run across this attitude yourselves. You probably all have friends or co-workers who, if you were to ask them to come to church with you, they respond by saying, I just prefer to worship at home. My relationship with God, it's a, it's a personal thing. That seems to be a more and more prevalent attitude in our society. A person's faith is private, it's personal, it's something that just takes place between the individual and God. You see this expressed in statements like, you know, look, I love Jesus, I just don't like religion. And then that reasoning is used to justify a person's lack of interest in the church. What such persons miss, however, is that the New Testament says things like this. James 1.27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And this, 1 John 4, 20-21, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So it's impossible to say, I love Jesus, but I don't care much for the church. Because true worship, according to the scriptures, is not simply expressed internally with one's own thoughts and emotions, but externally in the form of love for Christ's church. After all, the church is the body of Christ. The church is made up of those for whom Christ died. As members of the church are sanctified, they even grow into the likeness of Christ. So how can one say that they love Jesus and not love his church? It's simply impossible. Love for Jesus means love for the church. 
Unfortunately, the problem that we have with our culture is that we've so focused on the inward expression of our worship that we've really made it the end or goal of our worship. And that's not the goal. Right doctrine and the worship that results from right doctrine is to express itself in love. It would seem for many that it doesn't go that far. Rather, the question that we have when we leave church is, how did that make me feel? In short, we're selfish. The church as a whole is primarily concerned with themselves. And this explains not just the decline in church attendance, but many other things happening in the church as well. I mean, the spectator mindset that so many people bring to the church, where the church service is a performance to be viewed or experienced rather than an expression of worship to participate in. The allergic reaction that so many believers have when the topic of giving comes up. Even the rise of satellite churches and so-called paper pastors, where some Christians have begun to substitute podcasts for regular attendance at a local church. This all comes from this looming consumer mindset, which asks not, what can I do for the church, but rather, what can the church do for me? This all happens because we're selfish in our worship. And this is not what Jesus had in mind for his church. For him, the church was not an activity to go to. It was a fellowship to belong to. It wasn't supposed to be an event to attend or a spectacle to observe. It was supposed to be a family. It was about relationships. Like for him, the purpose of the local assembly wasn't just to show up and hear sermons. No, the local assembly was actually a community of people who actually worked together to help one another in their sanctification. Ministry wasn't something that professionals did. It was something the church would do together as they were instructed in God's Word. Unfortunately, I think that's a fairly foreign concept for a lot of Christians. And so right now we're taking a break from our study of Philippians where Paul urges the church to live and act as one to continue to dwell on this concept. The name of this series, once again, is Body Life. And the purpose of this series is to help you gain a right perspective on life in the local church. As a whole, the church has really flipped everything upside down. We come to the church as consumers, often asking, what are you all going to give me? We're self-centered. And what we want to do in this series is reverse the polarity in that line of thinking. I want to flip the switch so that if any of you come with that mindset, perhaps even just unintentionally, that it'll be corrected. And Lord willing, you can enjoy the real blessings that can be experienced when you empty yourself in selfless love for the church. We're doing this in the form of four B commands. The first two were be new and be one. If we want to approach life in the body of Christ effectively, then you need to be new and be one. And of course, what we've seen up to this point is that the unity of the body of Christ is absolutely indispensable to the health of the church. After all, when we believed in Christ, we were made ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. That's part of what our new identity in Christ means. We were transferred out of the domain of darkness and placed into the kingdom of God's Son. And we were transferred not just to belong to this kingdom, but to proclaim it to the world. We are Christ's representatives on the earth. This means that as we proclaim the gospel, we must do so in a way that reflects the will and character of the King. But as we saw particularly last week in our discussion of the oneness of the church, this isn't something that we can necessarily pull off on our own. As Paul says in Titus 2.14, Jesus died in order to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession for good works. As, uh, own, his own, uh, people for his own possession zealous for good works. He died so that being redeemed we might serve him in holiness. That's not something we pull off on our own. Not only are we dependent on God for that sanctification, but the means that God has established for that growth is His church. God has given varying gifts to the members of the church who are able to build, up, uh, build us up in Christ through the exercise of those gifts. And even more than this, our brothers and sisters are often able to see sin in us that we cannot see ourselves. And by lovingly addressing that with us, they can help us overcome weaknesses that we could never overcome on our own. And what this all means, of course, is that life with the church is simply indispensable to our faith. 
After all, it is central to our worship. Not only is love for Christ expressed primarily through love for His church, but we will never even be able to mature in our love for Christ apart from fellowship with His church. Fellowship with the church is central to our worship, and in being central to our worship, it's also central to our mission. I say this because it is as we worship Christ that we will proclaim Him. It's as we grow in our knowledge of Christ that we'll proclaim Him clearly. And it is as we grow into the image of Christ that the world will be able to behold Him in us. It's like I've said before, the church is in our communities. They're foreign embassies. And the way that we live with one another in these communities, it's a preview of the kingdom of heaven to the world around us. The way that the world will know what life will be like under Christ's reign in the future will be by the way that we live with one another right now. Or at least according to passages like Matthew 5, 14 and 16, that's the way it's supposed to be. Point is, the church and everything that life in the church entails, that, that is God's missions program. The com- this community is His plan for reaching the ends of the earth with the gospel. So that's what we've discovered so far. We're all ambassadors of Christ, and the way that we'll accomplish this mission is by growing in the knowledge of Christ while being united to one another. Now, we've already seen in part how these two concepts direct life in the local body. The reason why we hear the preaching of the Word every Sunday morning, for example, goes back to these two concepts. And the reason why Christ and the apostles so often plead with characteristics in the body, like humility and gentleness and patience, Again, goes back to these two concepts. But what should we actually do then if these things are true? If we are both new and one? And what's the attitude that we should take towards one another in light of these two concepts? These are the two questions that I want to answer for you this week and next. What should we do and what attitude should we do it with? And I want to start this week with the first question, what should we do? Up to this point, I've said that if you want to approach life in the body rightly, then you must be new and be one. How should you respond to those two truths? Well, first you get involved. That's the title for today's message, be involved. So in what way should you be involved? Well, based on what we've discussed over the past couple of weeks and What we see on passages scattered throughout the New Testament, I would summarize involvement in the church along these three lines. The first is this. Number one, learn. That's the first step to involvement in the body of Christ. You learn. Now, by this point in the series, it should already be evident that you really can't be an effective member of the body of Christ if you're not growing in the knowledge of the Scriptures. As we saw last week in Ephesians 4, the body builds itself up as the individual members of the church learn the scriptures and then speak truth to one another in love. That's how the body grows. That's how it's even unified. It builds itself up as pastors, teachers, evangelists, etc., equip the church with the knowledge of God, and the individual members of the church then use that knowledge to speak truth in the exercise of their spiritual gifts. And apart from this work, the church cannot attain, quote, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Well, that truth-speaking process obviously can't happen apart from knowledge of God's Word. In fact, you can't even exercise the humility and gentleness and patience necessary for this truth-speaking process if you're not learning. And I say that because that kind of maturity, the maturity to bear with your brothers and sisters in love, it can't happen unless you're constantly renewing your mind with the Scriptures. After all, I mean, that kind of love, it isn't natural, right? It's the product of a Spirit-fueled sanctification, a sanctification which can only occur as you're refreshing your mind with the knowledge of God's Word. So you must learn in this sense. You must grow in your understanding of the Scriptures. Every single one of you, is a theologian. And I think we've seen the importance of this concept through the past two messages, so I don't want to belabor this particular aspect of learning. I would only remind you once again that you must apply yourself to this work. You must work at growing in the knowledge of God's Word. 
And actually, I would like to emphasize this point by reminding you that the spiritual health and maturity of your brothers and sisters depends on it. I know probably most of us don't think of study this way. I would assume that most of us probably listen to messages and only think at the end of it, was that helpful for me? And I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, to move beyond this kind of thinking. Now, I'm not saying don't apply the Scripture to yourself. Please you know, apply the Scripture to yourself first, no doubt. But don't only think this way. Listen, and as you listen, think to yourself, how might this truth I'm learning be helpful for another believer I know? Or even how might this be helpful in the future, like maybe five years from now, as I try to help a brother who's ensnared in sin? When you read, don't just read for yourself. Again, read for yourself first, because it's as you grow in righteousness that you'll be a benefit to the body of Christ. But also read to acquire knowledge that will be useful for other Christians. You know, like maybe pick up a counseling book from time to time that deals with an issue that you don't struggle with. But do it so that you might have a better grasp of that issue for someone else who is. Point is, understand that your effectiveness in the body of Christ, your helpfulness to your brothers and sisters, will always be restricted by the extent of your knowledge of God's Word. You will never be more effective than what you know and have personally applied from the Scriptures. And the rest of the body, they're depending on that for their spiritual growth and vice versa. So stop asking yourself when it comes to learning, is this simply beneficial for me? Take it seriously. Apply yourself to the study of the Scriptures and do it not just for yourself, but for the benefit of the entire church. So again, learn, study. But I would encourage you, don't just learn the Scriptures either. Learn about your, bro- your fellow brothers and sisters. That's the aspect of learning I, I really don't want you to lose sight of when I say that part of involvement means learning. Don't just study the Scriptures. Study the church. Like spend time learning about the people around you. And just be intentional and diligent to do that as you would to study some aspect of theology. If you would, please turn to Acts 2, 42 to 47. Again, that's Acts 2, 42 to 47. If you're familiar with this passage, and you're probably aware of the fact that it's often pointed to as the example of what life should look like in the church. There's this tendency in the church uh, today uh, to ask, you know, what did church life look like in the books of Acts if they want to know, in the book of Acts, if they want to know what the church should look like? Personally, I don't know if this is always wise. After all, the church in the book of Acts is a church in its infancy. We should really expect the church to grow after the book of Acts. And yet the church in the book of Acts, and especially the Jerusalem church, in the opening chapters of this book, it was a church under the direct rule of the apostles. That's worth something. And this is especially the case when we come across those instances where it would seem like the church's actions are presented to us as exemplary. And I think that's what we find in Acts 2, 42-47. In this passage, the church is officially launched, so to speak. Peter, who you'll recall, Jesus said, would serve as the foundation of his church. He's just uh, preached the first recorded sermon after Jesus' ascension into heaven. It's Pentecost, and Peter has just proclaimed with great authority Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The people responded to Peter's preaching by saying, What shall we do? Peter tells them to repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they do. It appears to be the very first example of what we might consider a formal church membership process that follows. There's some kind of count taken, and Luke notes that about 3,000 are baptized that day. And just like that, the church is officially launched. Right after this, Luke states in Acts 2, 42 through 47, in what appears to be a summary statement of what church life was like in those early days of the church. He says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles'. 
and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's what life in the early church looked like. That's what Christians who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching understood body life to be. And there are a few different observations that we can make about this passage. For example, you see the church very clearly devoted to instruction here, so learning is going on. They were studying the scriptures. But look here what you see repeated three different times, once in verse 42, then again in verse 46, and again in verse 44. Luke says in verse 42 that they didn't just devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, but to the koinonia, fellowship. And there's this explanation that follows. He says, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That breaking of bread, by the way, that's not just a celebration of the Lord's table or something like that per se, though from places like 1 Corinthians 11, we conclude that probably happened, that that happened around the breaking of bread. No, these are meals. They were eating together. You can tell this from what Luke says in verse 46. He says, day by day. Keep in mind, this wasn't just one day a week or something like that. Day by day, they were attending the temple together. So like they were joining, joining together in both public and corporate, uh, this uh, public and corporate expression of worship. That's actually what this reference to the prayers uh, back in verse 42 seems to refer to. They're attending the public prayers that occurred at the temple. And he says they were breaking bread in their homes. Luke, and Luke says that they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So this isn't the Lord's table that they're receiving, though again from 1 Corinthians 11, we conclude that that was going on as well. No, these were actual meals. And if you want to know why they were having meals together, I think you see two different answers in the passage. The first goes to verse 42, where this breaking of bread describes how they were devoted to fellowship. In other words, part of the reason they did it was simply to be together. Luke brings this out when he says in verse 44, and all who believed were together. Point is, they spent time together, just to be together. That was one of the reasons for these meals. You see the second in verses 44 and 45, when Luke says, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is why Luke notes that they received their food with both glad and generous hearts in verse 46. These were meals where those who have much are giving to those who have little. That's why they were taking the meal with generosity. Those who have much are giving and gladness. Those who have little are receiving in thankfulness. And can you see what's going on here? They're not just spending time together, which is important, of course. No, but they actually know about one another. In this passage, I think we're always drawn to the extreme you know, generosity that's going on here. And it is amazing, and we're going to come back to that in a moment. But before you'd observe that, I had, I'd have you observe that they actually knew what one another's needs were. And they were attending to those needs. They spent time together. They knew one another. And as they knew one another, they attended to one another's needs. This is key. Part of being a part of the body means being aware of other people and knowing their needs. It's pretty simple. You can't help your brother or sister in Christ if you don't know about them. You won't know what truth to speak to them. You won't know how to serve them if you don't know anything about them. For example, the Scripture encourages us to pursue our brother when he's in sin. How, you, how are you ever going to be able to do that if all you ever know about him is what's exchanged in the polite small talk that we all have before and after church? How are you going to know that he's hurt or when he's struggling with a particular sin? Or suppose that for some reason you do discover that he's ensnared in some kind of sin and you want to go help him. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says that you should admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak while being patient with all. 
That's part of what it means to restore your brother in gentleness. You take the state of his soul into consideration. You don't admonish a faint-hearted brother or you'll only crush him. You don't encourage an unruly brother or you'll only uh, encourage him in his sin. You have to know who you're dealing with when you try to help them. How are you going to bring the appropriate word into your brother's life if you don't know anything about your brother? Can you see what I'm getting at here? You have to know your brothers and sisters, if you're going to be able to speak the truth to one another in love. Really, very often, the only way that you can get to know a person, like really know them, beyond the small talk, is just to be with them. And quite often, the only way that a brother is going to receive a word of correction with humility is when it's coming from someone that they know cares about them. And how do they know that you care for them? Partly it's by being with them by taking an interest in them that goes beyond just coming to correct them when they're falling. So spend time together, right? And, and don't just spend time together, get nosy. Remember, the kind of fellowship that we need is Christ-centered fellowship. It's a fellowship that's centered around the discussion of the Scriptures. Quite often in the church, you'll see Christians hang out together and talk about sports or TV shows, and then they'll call that fellowship. And again, that's not all bad. After all, it's by talking about these things that we're interested in that we really get to know what's going on in each other's life. So there's not that there's anything wrong with that, but still, if you don't know what's going on in your brother or sister's life spiritually, you don't really know them, at least not in the way that you need to, not in the way that counts. So don't be afraid to shift the topic every now and then and say, brother, how can I pray for you? Can you tell me what you're wrestling with so that I can share that burden with you? And by the way, if someone gets nosy and asks you, assuming there's someone you do know and trust, right? Tell them. Don't stiff-arm them. Don't keep them at a distance. Don't just start lifting off all the physical ailments of your extended relatives. Tell them. And then turn around and say, how can I pray for you? This isn't something that we should resent. Very often we resent that kind of question. That's not something we should resent. Your brother isn't being a Pharisee when he starts digging into your life. He's being a brother. I remember back when I was a new Christian, there was this one time when I was chatting with an older friend of mine after church. And during the course of the conversation, I revealed to him that that weekend I was going to do this thing, which at the time, as a new believer, I didn't think was that big of a deal. There was nothing inherently sinful about it. But in the process... I was going to expose myself to temptation. And while at the time, I thought it was pharisaical to take what were really just some common steps to avoid temptation, he knew better. And so as I was sharing this with him, he told me, he said, I said, yeah, this is what I'm going to be doing over the weekend. He questioned whether that was really wise. I'm like, I don't see what the big deal is. And he said, well, okay. But just as a heads up, I might give you a call Saturday. And make sure that you're doing all right. And you know what? Saturday came around, and I got a phone call. And at the time, I was a little offended. I thought, I, I thought, who does he think I am? What kind of confidence does this guy have in me? And the answer was very little. <laughs> and he had every right to think that way. And you know what? I still love that man dearly today because of it. It's like it says in Proverbs 28, 23, whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. That's the way it turned out for this man. He wasn't afraid to risk being offended, or me being offended by him. He cared about my spiritual well-being more than what I thought about him. I've had very few friends in my life who have loved me like that. So even though I was a little offended at the time, I still love him today because of it. And just to be clear, I want to clarify this we weren't accountability partners or something like that he didn't need some kind of official relationship to act this way towards me this was just a mature christian after church paying attention to what was going on in the life of a new christian being intentional to watch out for what was going on in his spiritual life i would strongly encourage you to do the same don't wait for some kind of formal discipleship relationship to start up or something like that just start watching out for your brothers and sisters, and do it by asking questions. Get to know them. And again, don't just know about them, but be known too. Let them find out about you. 
Bottom line, learn about the people that you're in fellowship with. That's the first step to being involved in, with body life. Learn. The second step is this. Number two, speak. Being involved in the body requires that you speak. So the body grows as the mind is renewed, and the mind is renewed as the whole body ministers the truth to one another in love. Quite clearly, then, this requires us, all of us, to speak. This is a significant reason for life in the church, to build one another up by speaking the truth to one another, whether that be in the form of theological truth or simply addressing a sin in the believer's life. This means that we must speak. I think we should note that there is no one way to speak, though. For example, you may think, when I say speak, that I'm saying admonish. That's, I think, the concept that comes to mind when we start talking about addressing one another's sin. We think confront or admonish. Like, get in the person's face and say, hey, stop doing that. But when the Bible tells us about the type of speaking that we're to do in the church, it's much broader than that. That's why I use this word address. We address one another's sin or error. I say that because not every form of speaking that we should do in relation to sin is admonish. For example, as I was preparing for this series, I was reviewing the one another statements in Scripture to try to get a summary of the types of activities that the New Testament writers tell the church to do towards one another. That's a pretty good place to begin when thinking about life in the body. What do the apostles say that we should do for one another? I then tried to categorize these one another statements along particular themes and that they had in common so I could perhaps get structure uh, for our series this way, focusing in on the one another statements in the New Testament. And when you do that, one thing you notice is that a large chunk of the one another statements have to do with speaking. For example, listen here. Paul says, Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we are to both teach and admonish one another. That is part of what it means to speak to one another. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul explains the concept of the rapture. And after he finishes that, he says in verse 18, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So there's this doctrinal truth that the Thessalonians are to share with one another, but it's not done to admonish or to correct each other, but to encourage one another. Again, we're to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Along those lines, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, he says, Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. You'll remember that Paul writes to the Corinthians after this rift has formed in the church concerning Paul's leadership. Well, Paul tells the Corinthians to agree with one another. Again, they're to seek unity. And then after disagreements have been resolved, to comfort one another. Similar to encourage, they're to speak soothing words that are aimed at covering up the former break in the relationship. Also similar to encourage, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So again, we're to encourage one another. And part of what this means is stirring one another up to love and good works. In fact, as you can tell from that passage, this is actually why we shouldn't neglect the assembling of ourselves. We meet together so that we can each give, uh, give each other a spiritual boost, so to speak. We urge one another on to persevere in the faith and continue to grow in Christ. That's life in the body of Christ. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. If you know the context of that passage, James speaks of some kind of connection between sin and sickness for some members of the church. So James says, confess your sins to one another. They're to tell one another about 
their sins against each other. And why? So that they may also then pray for the one who is sick. So they're both to confess and pray for one another. And note this, sin shouldn't be addressed, just addressed through the admonishment of a brother. No part of speaking is that I come to my brother on my own while in my sin. And I say, will you help me? And then we help each other. And in part, we do that by praying for one another. Obviously, if we're confessing our sins, those aren't always going to be sins against God alone. Sometimes those are going to be sins against each other as well. And in response to this, Paul says, Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Obviously, forgiveness isn't just a matter of speaking. After all, Jesus demands that we forgive from the heart in Matthew 18. But it would still be expected that we'll speak words of forgiveness as part of comforting one another. We do that by telling the other person, after they've confessed their sin to us and sought forgiveness, we say to them, I forgive you. We express it. We are told not to lie to one another in Colossians 3.9. So again, we're to speak truth to one another. And that's not just doctrinal truth, like Ephesians 4.15 says we are to speak the truth in love, but in context, that seems to refer primarily to theological truth. What we see in passages like Colossians 3.9 is that we don't just speak truth about God to one another. We speak truth about one another to one another. Again, I confess my sins. I speak the truth. And when you're in sin, I tell you. I don't lie to you and tell you that there's no problem. I speak the truth. When you, when you ask me to make a commitment and I can't keep it, I don't lie to you and say, I'll do it when I don't intend to. And then make up an excuse later on to try to keep from hurting your feelings. I tell you up front, I don't think I can do that. I speak the truth. On a few different occasions, the apostles tell the church to greet one another with a kiss. Just like forgiving, greeting isn't necessarily verbal. The point is that we should accept one another, welcome one another. Just That's done with a lot more than just words, but words should be a part of it too. We verbalize our oneness by greeting one another. We're told not to grumble against one another in James 5.19. So we don't complain about each other to one another. We don't tear each other down in that way. Instead, we build one another up by being thankful. So again, don't confuse what, I, what I'm saying here when I say speak. I'm not just saying admonish. There's a broad, broad spectrum regarding the number of ways that we can minister to one another with our words. And the right way to speak all depends on the circumstances surrounding your brother. Again, that's why I say that the first step to involvement in the church is to learn. You need to listen first. Spend time investing in other people, getting to know them, so that you can know the right way to speak to them. But once you do that, once you know who you're dealing with, what their struggles are and what their attitudes are towards their struggles, the type of doctrine they're applying to their struggles, all that, once you do that, once you listen well, speak. Make a point to speak. Don't be a shrinking violet. Be bold. Stick your foot in your mouth from time to time. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying be reckless. Please don't be reckless. All I'm saying is don't let your fear that you may say something wrong become an excuse that you use to never actually speak the truth. You know, the Scripture commends those who are prudent with their words, who think before they speak. The man-fearers among us will use that to pass off our cowardice as righteousness. We'll say, well, I just can't be sure about what I think I need to say. Listen, if you've thought about it and you're pretty sure, even mostly sure, about what you should say, that's not rash speech. The Scripture condemns rash speaking. If you spent time thinking about what to say and how to say it first and whether you should say something, that's not rash. You can speak. And if you do end up being wrong, guess what? You can speak by confessing your error and seeking forgiveness. The error in judgment isn't irreconcilable. And if you spoke in love, that will be evident to your brother and sister, even if you're wrong, right? Because you've spoken with humility and gentleness. So if you speak in error, even still, it's not the end of the world. The two of you can be restored. So don't be afraid. Speak. 
That's the second step to being involved, speak. The third step, and I'll just point out up front, sometimes it's the second as well. Sometimes you do this instead of speaking. The third step to being involved is this. Number three, serve. Serve. Be involved in the body of Christ by serving your brothers and sisters. If you happen to still be in Acts 2, 42 and uh, 47, I want you to look again at what's going on in this passage. So if you would, go ahead and turn back over there. Acts 2, 42. So earlier we saw that the church spending time together, we saw the church spending time together uh, both in public worship and private fellowship. We saw that they were learning about one one another in that fellowship. And what did they do with that knowledge? Verses 44 and 45. He says, And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's astonishing. These brothers and sisters were spending time with one another. They saw one another's needs, and then they met those needs. And they did it with astounding generosity. In other words, they didn't just edify one another with words. They didn't just build one another up with theology and doctrine. You know, just said, be warm and be filled, right? Something like that. No, they did it with actions as well. Sometimes when you learn about your brother or sister, and you're sitting there trying to figure out, what does this person need to be built up in Christ? This is what you'll find. What they need isn't a word. It's an action. Listen, when there's a brother or sister mourning the loss of a family member or a close friend, or when they're going through depression, and you're wanting to see them restored to the comfort that's found in fellowship with Christ, understand that what they may need is not a scripture passage. What they may need is a friend. Many times, all the scripture passages that you know to share with them, they know them all already. And they've already been thinking about those passages constantly as they've wrestled through their grief. They know those truths, and they believe those truths. But that doesn't necessarily take away the pain, right? I mean, take the loss of a loved one, for instance. Even hope in the resurrection doesn't mean that the loss feels good, right? I mean, even Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, didn't he? Sometimes the best thing you can do for someone who's going through some kind of hardship like that is not to speak, but to act, to show them love, sometimes by simply being with them so that they don't have to go through the grief alone. The brother who's having trouble keeping the lights on, he probably doesn't need a lecture on the sovereignty of God. I mean, yeah, an understanding of God's sovereignty is going to help him get through that situation, and it may be helpful to remind him. But at the same time, he may be aware of all of that and be clinging to that truth desperately. His lights are still out. You know how you might encourage him, and I mean really, really encourage him as he's fighting through that more than anything else? You help him by paying the light bill. I mean, when when he sees a brother putting his money where his mouth is and helping him out in a tough situation, when he sees the church selflessly loving one another, that can help him understand both the love and sovereignty of God in ways that he couldn't even imagine before. This is sometimes what people really need in order to be restored in their relationship with God, not just words, but actions. They don't just need to hear of God's mercy. They need to see it. They don't just need to hear of God's love. They need to experience it. Again, this is the beauty of the church. When we start actively loving one another, we become a visible manifestation of the love of Christ. We become a preview of the kingdom of heaven. And so it is imperative that we not only speak, but that we also serve. If we are truly one with the body of Christ, if we truly care about their spiritual well-being, then we won't just love them with our words, but with our actions as well. As it says in 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So how do we serve? And just like we saw with speak, there's not just one answer to that question. In terms of like service to the body generally, you just get active. 
and start exercising your gifts. It's like what we saw last week in Romans 12, 6 through 8. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We all have different gifts, meaning that we are all able to do some types of service to the body better than others. And the best way of finding out what those gifts are isn't necessarily by taking a spiritual gift inventory or something like that. We just get active. We try to meet whatever needs we can identify, and before long, you'll probably start seeing fruit in one area or another. And when you find out what that is, don't limit yourself to that kind of service per se, but invest in it. I'm a teaching elder, right? Why is that? Well, it's because I've always liked to teach, and when I've tried to do it, others have affirmed that they think it's something I should do. So while I don't neglect other types of service in the church, when I see a need, I've still invested in that particular type of service. That's where it seems like I can be of greatest use to the brothers and sisters, by keeping my nose in a book. For others, Paul says, it may be in contributing financially. Like there are wealthy Christians, that's what they're good at making money and sharing it with others. Personally, I can't do that. I'm not a businessman. I was trying to work on my taxes yesterday. It was giving me a headache. <laughs> Some Christians are good at that. And if that's what a Christian is good at, it's not wrong for them to hone that skill so that they can give with generosity. Now, again, they shouldn't neglect other types of service as those opportunities come along, just as other Christians cannot neglect their duty to give financially to the church. But it's still okay for them to do that well. Others may be especially compassionate. They're very aware of other people's hardships. And they, they're not only aware of those hardships, but they're very good at knowing how to ease others' pain. They know how to help their suffering. That kind of a person may want to direct their service to those who are hurting. If we're understanding the office of deacon rightly, for instance, such a person may want to consider serving in the church in that way if they're so called. And we could go on, but the idea is that if we're talking about serving the body as a whole, then get, get active in the body, see what you're good at, and then perhaps start to really invest in understanding the kind of service that you do well. Remember, the building up of the body of Christ is something that we do together. It's a team effort. That means that we don't all excel in every single aspect of service. Obviously, we still want to... We still want to do as well as we can across the board, but don't think that that means being an expert in everything. That's not required for the body to grow. The body will grow and each part is playing its part in doing it well. So really learn your role and excel at it to the best of your ability. That's one way to look at service in the body, if we're looking at it from the broader corporate level. Now when it comes down to that one individual brother or sister that you're trying to serve, once again it all goes back to their needs. In Acts 2, the need was financial. There were poor brothers who didn't have food to eat, and so those who had more demonstrated Christ's love by sharing with them and giving to them financially. It may be that your brother just needs a sympathetic ear, a friend who can show them compassion and comfort. Maybe it is theological. Maybe it is speaking that they need and not action per se. This is why it's so, so important that you learn about your brothers, and not just individually, but as a group, too. It's important that you really get to know the body of Christ. Because as you spend time with your brothers and sisters, you'll discover what their needs really are, and you'll know how to better minister to them. You'll know in what way they need to be served. And when you discover that, guess what? You may not know how to help them. You may find out that you're not equipped to handle the problem that, you're fa that they're facing. But if you know not just them, but the rest of the body as well, you may know how to connect them with the people in the body who can help them. For example, you may come across a, a brother or sister who's really struggling in their parenting. They just don't know how to handle some disciplinary issues with their kids. And maybe you don't have kids, or maybe you've never faced that problem with your kids, and you don't know how to address that issue. But if you know the rest of the body as well, you may know someone else who has faced that issue and answered it. And then you can tell that brother, you know, you really need to talk to so-and-so because I remember they faced this same issue and they overcame it and I think they can help you. 
Can you see how this works? Together we can help one another grow into Christ's likeness. But what it means, bottom line, at the end of the day, is that we have to abandon this mindset to the body which only says, what can I get out of this? John F. Kennedy once said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. This needs to be the attitude that all of us bring to the church. You must stop asking what your church can do for you and start asking what you can do for your church. This attitude is sorely lacking in the church today. This is one of the reasons why church attendance is down. People ask, what will I gain from being in church? If If they think the answer is nothing, then they don't go. This is why there's this overall spectator mentality that people take to the church service. The questions that so many people want to know is, did the music edify me? Did the pastor's message speak to my problems today? Were the people at church friendly to me? And that's because the focus is on us, not the people around us. That's not the approach that we should be taking towards church. Instead, the question we should be asking ourselves is, what will others gain by my being at church today? I have to say it's probably a pretty humbling question for many of us. That will shine a light on how well we're serving others. Listen, if the church is truly going to build itself up in love, this is the attitude we need to adopt as a body here at Cornerstone. We've got to flip the switch from this very self-centered type of thinking and ask ourselves instead, what's going on with the people around me and how can I help them? And when you go home today, ask yourself this question, what can I do to be involved with my church? And then review this list. Examine where you fall short and start to plan what changes you can make to build up your brothers and sisters. This week we're going to continue to discuss how to apply these concepts in our fellowship groups. I'd encourage you uh, to be there at one of those. Join us in that discussion. In the meantime, let's go ahead and close with prayer.